Hey, welcome to the June episode of Write You a Song. Brought to you again in part by Songwriter City, which brings songwriters like those we've featured on this podcast already, Tim Nichols, Brett Warren, Liz Rose, to your event, whether it's a corporate meeting or a small town festival. It's a great way for country music fans to learn where many of their favorite songs come from, with stories behind the songs and sometimes stories behind the stories. It really is fun. It's unique, and you and your guests will love it, and they will travel anywhere. Find out more at songwritercity.com. Now, George Strait has said about songwriters, quote, I'm always looking for great songs and not being much of a songwriter. I depend on great songwriters to send them to me. I go through tons of stuff, and sometimes you just find material that kind of fits, and it becomes something special. Now, for George, a lot of that material over his career has come from songwriter Dean Dillon, who's written at least 15 top 10 songs for him, including his latest, Every Little Honky Tonk Bar. But most songwriters aren't so attached to one artist. Out of necessity, they have to write and write and write and then hope and hope and hope that somebody notices their creation, then decides that it kind of fits and turns it into something special. In pursuing that goal, a lot of songwriters prefer to keep their songs somewhat generic for the broadest appeal possible. Others, though, like our guest today, write from a more personal standpoint because that's how they feel they write best. And while it might take a little while longer for the right artist to come along and decide that one of this guy's songs kind of fits. The results can still be the same. It gets turned into something special. J.T. Harding, welcome to write you a song. Woo! Hello from Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> you used to be able to throw a rock and hit a songwriter. Now you can throw a rock and uh, hit 10 bachelorettes on a pedal tavern. But I'm not complaining. <laughs> I am not complaining. <laughs> You're single, I take it? Uh, I am, I am, I am, yeah. <laughs> I've been looking forward to talking. I always say, hey, I'm looking for singles, but they, I, they never realize I'm talking about songs from Kenny Chesney. <laughs> Man, I'm very flattered to uh, to uh, be here, Tom, so thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to talking to you all week. I, of all the songwriters that, that we've had so far on on, uh, on Write You a Song, you definitely have the most interesting backstory. I don't think we'll ever get anybody with a more interesting backstory than you, starting with, if you don't mind, because I know you've been over this ground a thousand times, but uh, talk about who your birth father was, and just give us a little background in, into that. Oh, absolutely. A great question. So people say, you know, how did you become a, a songwriter? And I, I literally say it's destiny. So I was adopted at, at birth, and I found out uh, years later my biological father was a up-and-coming brand-new disc jockey out of college doing the late-night shift uh, in Tennessee, and my biological mother would call in to request songs. No one else was really calling in late at night, and they would start to kind of flirt over the radio, and he would play songs for her. They met, fell in love. They had me, and I truly believe they they loved me enough to realize they couldn't take care of me because they weren't going to get married, and I was adopted by the Hardings, and I've never looked back. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Well, that uh, young DJ... Um, who, you know, whose who, who's mouth is, uh, I can't even think of a joke, the, the Captain Loudmouth, <laughs> he went on to become uh, a DJ in New York City and also an actor by the name of, uh, his name is Jay Thomas, and he was on Cheers, Murphy Brown. He threw the football every Christmas on David Letterman and told this incredible Lone Ranger story. I didn't meet him till years, years later, but we kind of became like two long-lost fraternity brothers. We became great friends. He became friends with my family, and it was a real special friendship. As a radio guy, I 
admired your dad for years, a great actor, but for me, he was one of the all-time great radio people. And what's so interesting is that there were some real parallels, even though growing up you didn't know who your biological dad was. And by all accounts, you've said it yourself, you had a great, happy childhood in, in Detroit, Michigan. The best. Um, yeah, there were some kind of weird parallels between you and your dad, even way before you found out who he was. Oh, definitely. Both of our egos are out of control. We talk nonstop. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't sing to save his life. He would always say the Beatles were idiots and you know, Bob Dylan was a plagiarist. You know, But we definitely both had the entertainment gene. He just was more towards acting and I was more towards you know, music. So it's an interesting combination. I don't really think about it that much. I, I mean, I probably would have graduated, gradu- not graduated, gravitated towards music, but also I was influenced by my dad, Larry Harding. He completely, my mom and my dad accepted me for who I was. They're big sports people, gigantic people. You know, my dad worked at ESPN and sports talk radio, but by him allowing me to be myself and bringing me to work with him and letting me hang out at the radio station, I, I really think I couldn't have, I never would have succeeded without them, even though I had this fun, you know, Jay Thomas blood running through me. So was it a revelation when you found out who your dad was and you met him and you realized you actually liked him? Um, did you all of a sudden start putting these pieces together? Oh, this is why I am who I am. Yes. Yeah, so I, I don't want to go into all the details because some people are private about it, but basically sure. I was talking to a long-lost family member, and they said, I want to tell you who your bio- biological father is. And they they said, uh, you know, he's an actor, and he was on Cheers. And some people have heard this story, so my, I knew they weren't kidding, and my brain was kind of scanning the cast of Cheers, and I, I yelled to my roommate at the time, I'm rich! My dad is Ted Danson! And they said, no, no, no. They said, your dad, Jay Thomas. And at the time... I had moved to Los Angeles at, you know, 18 years old, and literally, this is a true story, two blocks from my apartment, there was a giant building, the entire building was a photo of Jay Thomas, his face on the head of a female ballerina, and it said, we apologize for Jay Thomas, because at that time, he was the biggest disc jockey Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, also on a TV show, I believe, called Love and War. So the next thing you know, I'm seeing his face on TV Guide, on all these billboards. It was really, really, really wild. My my parents, the Hardings, named me John Thomas, and Jay's real name is John Thomas. Wow. But he changed it to Jay Thomas because apparently there was someone, another actor named Jay Thomas, yeah. That's so wild. I mean, I mean, this is a whole other podcast. He was, he was one of a kind. But I want to ask you how you went from... You know, it, it sounded like you were a really creative, engaged, dynamic kid when you were growing up. But as you said, your dad didn't have any, like, musical background or anything. How did you How did you find yourself in music? So, great question. Although I don't remember this, uh, my parents told me that I would jump around and always try to get everyone to sing, We all live in a yellow submarine. Isn't it funny? Even I'm, I don't really know a ton about the Beatles, but, you know, there I am, influenced by them without even remembering it. I always loved music, loved Kiss, loved Van Halen, anything kind of loud and bombastic. And then when MTV came blasting into all our living rooms, it had such a profound effect on me. Imagine I was, you know, a little kid and I'm seeing, you know, Michael Jackson with the song with the sidewalk lighting up, Madonna singing like a virgin in a wedding dress, you know, David Lee Roth jumping off of the drum riser with explosions going off, and I just was obsessed with MTV, I wanted to crawl into the television. So how do you be a part of that? Well, I 
started jumping around with a hockey stick for a guitar. And then I met a kid who did play guitar. And then my parents uh, got me a drum set, but I wasn't that great at the drums. So I'm like, well, I can be a singer. And I had another buddy named Rich Waller who was a great drummer. So then we, well, we want to play for all the girls in town. So we started playing in my backyard. Then there was a thing called the Battle of the Bands that we we won. And then I started saying, guys, we've got to, you know, start writing our own songs. I, I, I just kind of had an instinct with due respect to all the musicians of the world. I didn't want to end up working at a music store when I was 60 years old. I didn't want to be singing cover songs at a Holiday Inn. And I'm not trying to sound mean. And I, and I just had an instinct. We've got to write our own songs. One of the first songs I ever wrote was called Lockjaw. And the only reason I remember it is because my friend, who's a doctor now, his mother called my mom to complain because one of the lyrics was, when your lips are stunned, you can't have any fun. It was about this girl we all liked that had braces. And that's the only reason I remember it. Um, and so I just said, we've got to write songs. And, we, and the songs, of course, were not very good. And then on the back of all of my CDs, it said Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard. So at some point I said, I am moving to California. I want to be where these record companies are. I, I could have moved to New York, but I, you know, it's better to have a broken air conditioner than a broken heater if you're broke <laughs> like I was. And that's how it all started. And I got a job at Tower Records. I started passing out demos. I was so naive that something could happen that it actually did. I just had tunnel vision. I was like, I'm going to make this happen no matter what. When you found out who your dad was and he found out what you wanted to do, I'm assuming he knew what you wanted to do for a living. Maybe you were already doing it at that point. Did that help you in any way kind of navigate what was to come? Because what you're going into, it, it, it's not an easy path. No, definitely not. Uh, great question. I had kind of already, I had had a record deal and stuff. So it was it was great to have someone that had to to talk to someone that had the desire to kind of be up on the stage. I mean, even though I'm a songwriter, it all started with being up on the stage. So it was great for us to compare stories, but I had kind of already been through the beginnings of, of the gauntlet a bit. And, uh, I mean, I think I just became immune to mm -hmm. rejection. I mean, people say no so many times, but I would hear something on the radio that was great, but then I would hear something else that wasn't so great. And I, I just, I was like, I know I can do this. I'm at least as good as that guy. I just, I never really thought about it too much, what the future would hold. I just kept hoping that something would happen. So what and, kind of, and, you know, and, and just really, you know, working, you know, really hard. What kind of music did you play? Um, oh, it was pretty much what I'm doing now. You know, I love 80s, you know, hard rock and, and, and Bruce Springsteen and Prince. And if you kind of combine all of that, it became country. Just turn on the radio. So I'm very lucky that country music kind of in, embraced what I do, because I think when I was first writing it, it didn't seem country at all. The One of the biggest hits I've ever had, Somewhere With You, that Kenny Chesney put out, people turned that song down for two years straight. Everyone kept saying, this is just not country. And then luckily, Kenny Chesney, who is obviously a very, very smart person, he heard it and just, I, he must have just known it was something different that he could do. And when he put it out, just everybody got out of his way and it just worked and I, I, you know, I kept going. You're going out someone new I'm going out someone too I won't feel sorry for me I'm getting drunk but I'd much rather be somewhere with you laughing loud on a carnival ride driving around Saturday night to make fun of me 
singing my song, got a hotel room just to turn you on. Said, pick me up at 3 a.m. You're fighting with your mom again. And I go, I go, I go somewhere with you. Another song I wrote with a guy named Uncle Cracker named Smile was a pop hit, but a station in Detroit, where Cracker is from, started playing it on a country station, and then other country stations followed suit. So that was another thing that just kind of happened organically. So I've, I've been very, very fortunate. You're better than the best. I'm lucky just to linger in your life. Cooler than the flip side of my pillow. That's right. Completely unaware. Nothing can compare to where you sent me. Let's me know that it's okay. Did you drift to Nashville, or did you set sail for Nashville from L.A.? Ooh, set sail. I love it. No, I was uh, I was in uh, Los Angeles playing around, and I'd worked for bands. I'd had a few record deals that where I you know, signed the record deal, was driven around, and a limousine made records that didn't come out, which I, that happens a lot. I didn't know that happened at the time, so I was always a little bummed out when it crashed and burned. But people started calling me and asking me for songs, and then I would – come to Nashville or people would see me in LA and say, you know, he's got an acoustic guitar. Let's send him down to Nashville. And you're reminding me in between record deals. I would, didn't want to go back to the record store. I got a job working for the band Lincoln park who were very good to me. And they started letting me open up for them because they would see me working on songs. And uh, a kid that saw me one night, I actually got booed off the stage of Lincoln Park. Everyone was throwing stuff at me. I was out there with an acoustic guitar in front of 10,000 heavy metal, you know, pierced ear maniac or pierced nosed maniacs. And a kid said, you know, I saw you, you were great. And I had these CDs that I would pass out by the tour bus. And he gave one to his dad who gave it to a guy in LA who knew someone in Nashville. It's just, it's a really crazy connect the dots. But I think the point is if anyone's listening that wants to be a songwriter, if you keep writing and playing and just putting yourself out there, eventually it can work out. And just one other note on your time in in LA. I, I have to bring up you being a personal assistant to Marilyn Manson. My God. Yes. Okay, now don't say his name three times. He'll appear. So, so that's one. Yeah. So at that time, so I was signed to a record label that closed, but at that time there were literally 50 record labels all on Sunset. Madonna had a label. Sony Records had like 10 different labels. Now there's only a few, but Marilyn Manson had his own record label as well. So I took my CD over there, and someone called me, and they said, we're not really putting out records, but – you know, come and meet Manson, and he was about to go on a giant world tour, and he was really charming and convinced. All right, I've said his name twice. Don't say it one more time. And he said, come around the world with me, and it was incredible. I mean, that's a book in itself. And uh, we went to, you know, all over the world, places where different cultures, different languages, Russia, Japan, I mean, you name it, we were there. And then that's how I got the job uh, after working for him. 
I would mainly throw parties backstage every night, and I was his kind of assistant for a year. After that, all these bands started calling me, but I said, man, I'm a really good songwriter. I got to stick to it no matter what happens, and then when Linkin Park called, they actually had their own record label at the time, too, so I said, well, let me go try work for these guys. They, they couldn't have been nicer. Working, going from Marilyn Manson to Lincoln Park is like going to war for five years and then coming home and you're working at the yogurt store. It was culture shock. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was fantastic. I mean, Marilyn Manson, whether you like his music or not, he put on a show that you can't believe. So it really taught me a lot. And I do songwriter shows all the time and, and, and I blow people's minds. And probably a lot of it stems back from watching Lincoln Park and Marilyn Manson and all sure. those MTV videos even though i just have an acoustic guitar i really know how to put on a show well i mean obviously just talking to you you have a charisma and a flair and if anybody has seen pictures of you you've got (laughs) you've got a way with suits as well and i'm just wondering is there a party that would still like to be a a, a lead singer are you totally content doing what you're doing now uh yes i'm pretty content i mean maybe if it just landed in my lap and someone said let's go on tour but that is a a whole different lifestyle and once i heard some songs i wrote on the radio it really kind of changed something in me i thought this is a really great life and nashville is a great city to live in and i'm I'm very content right now and i i travel all over doing shows the bluebird cafe you know, in the last year alone, I've been to Sundance, uh, Utah twice. They, they've flown me to London. Um, I just did a show last night in Georgia for a huge crowd. So it's really fun. You play songs you've written. People's jaws drop when they realize you've written some of their favorite country songs, and they've never thought about it once before who might have written these songs. And uh, so I really, I really feel like I have the best of both worlds. I really do. Well, and that's why we do this podcast, because we want to shine a light on the people who, who write these songs that become part of the fabric of our lives. And the cool thing about it was interesting when I saw the songs that you had written um, for me as a as a radio announcer uh, you know, at, at a country station, like every song you've written are all songs that I can distinctly remember when they've and I'm not making this up. They all are they're different. I mean, they are just different. I don't know how else to put it, but they, every single song to me, when we started playing, it stood out right away. Oh, thank you. Is that your L.A. lifestyle and influences? That's what we're hearing there, right? Yeah, possibly. And it, it's a great reminder to myself to not go into these rooms every day in Nashville and try to write. I'm saying you're reminding me, Tom, not to go in and try to write something that's currently on the radio. You're right. It's nothing I planned out, but at the time... If I had sat in a room and said, let's try to write a Kenny Chesney song, and we tried to copy Don't Blink or You Think My Tractor's Sexy, which are incredible songs, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. But, but, but the fact, and I, and I wrote it with songwriting superstar Shane McAnally, neither of us even had a writing deal at the time. If we had tried to copy something else that was happening, you know, no one would even have ever heard the song. But luckily for, for both of us, we were just writing what was, you know, what we were just feeling at the time. And, uh, and I guess I still try, try to do that. Thank you. Like trying to think of another example, maybe different for girls that Dirks Bentley or no, a good example is alone with you for Jake Owen. When people first heard it, they said, well, this is great, but it would be for a girl because I can't be alone with you. And I kept saying, no, if, if a guy sings this, people are going to go crazy. And people are like, well, you know, country dudes don't maybe like to be this vulnerable and then Jake Owen put it out, and it was just a, a huge hit for him. So I really, I guess the point is, you know, it takes a really 
clever and uh, an artist with vision to put them out as well. I don't see you like you don't call me back, but you kiss me when you're drunk. I don't know your friends, don't know where you've been. Why are you one now? Control, it's up to my mouth and tell me you can't stay. Don't slip your hand under my shirt and tell me it's okay. Don't say it doesn't matter cause it's gonna matter to me. I can't be I'm very flattered. Thank you for those comments. Well, when I was reading through some of the lyrics of the songs this morning, getting ready for this this interview, um, the the word that kind of popped up in my head was empathetic. You write really empathetically, if that makes sense. Like you really are able to kind of put the listener in 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 the inside the song almost. Oh, thank you. For anyone that doesn't know my songs, it's it's me just trying to sing away my broken heart, yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Tom, when I dry my tears with dollar bills, it gets a little easier. No, no thank you. So, it- and it's also just keeping your antennas open. For, for instance, uh, different for girls, I, I had met a girl that I was attracted to, and we had spoken on the phone a few times, and she was really fun and, you know, was, was I don't want to give away, like, where she worked or anything, but was doing really well at work. And then I ran into a friend of hers, and they said, oh, well, she's going through a really bad breakup, so that's probably not going to move forward. And I was like, what are you talking about a breakup? So I asked her about it, and she said, well, what am I supposed to do? Just, you know, let myself go? I can't just, like, not go to work or, you know. She just said that. I can't let myself go. Now, what I do and what my buddies do when they go through a breakup, we play Xbox all day. We don't shave. We skip work. I actually have a buddy who would go to a bar and, you know, pick fights, which is just completely ridiculous. And then it just, the song just fell out. And, and I'm not saying it's different for every girl, but uh, so that's where that song came from. The exact story that I was hearing over the phone from a girl and then just kind of comparing it to my buddies. She don't throw any t-shirt on and walk to a bar. She don't text her friends and say, I gotta get laid tonight. She don't say, it's okay. I never loved him anyway She don't scroll through her phone Just looking for a band-aid It's different for girls When their hearts get broke They can't take it back together With a whiskey and coke They don't take someone home And act like it's nothing They can't just switch it off Every time they feel something um, Sangria was actually turned down by a couple of different artists before you guys were able to lock down Blake Shelton. Talk about the evolution of that song, because it didn't, what it yeah, became, your, it wasn't what it started homework, out as, right? That, this is great, because you have really done your homework. So, uh... Josh Osborne, one of the best writers in town, had the title 
sangria and and apparently some other songwriters had turned it down but i i go to new york a lot i see sangria written on the chalkboards outside of the cool restaurants in little italy the chalkboard menu so i knew it was a sexy word i said let's write it for sure i don't know what josh was thinking of but i was thinking there's a hotel still there in malibu california right on the beach that is abandoned and it still is you can see the curtains blowing in the wind you can see a little tiki hut bar i can't believe nobody has bought this place but i drive by it all the time when i was going up to santa barbara to jay's house jay thomas and that's what i was thinking of like being at that hotel with someone you were super attracted to you know you're crashing into me like waves on the coast straw hut bar so we wrote it and then we knew the song was done but we we thought we should add a little extra part and Josh said to me what is sangria and I said well a duh it's this drink from Italy I have it all the time in little Italy well he was googling it at the same time and he said actually it's from Spain so I was finally <laughs> wrong Tom I knew it would happen uh so that's how we came up with the part only thing I want to do tonight is drink you like a Spanish wine so um that's it. For you songwriters out there, a real kind of clever trick is when you write a bridge, it's hard to do. Write something, explain the title in a new way that you haven't explained it before. So instead of just saying, fill up your glass, fill up your glass, we've said, well, what is sangria? Spanish wine. So we threw that into the bridge. It's something that I like to do a lot. Um, but anyway, so then, yeah, you're exactly right. Kenny Chesney heard the, the song somehow and recorded it. And uh, everyone heard it and said it was fantastic. But Kenny Chesney is a very smart person. He's the guy standing on that stage every night in front of 80,000 people. He knows what's going to work for him better than anyone else. And he decided not to put it on his album. At the time, super disappointing. But then um, Scott Hendricks, who produces Blake Shelton, had heard the song. And he said he just couldn't get it out of his head. And he thought maybe Blake shouldn't have any more drinking songs. But they decided to record it, and it became a big hit, and we were real fortunate. So, But I'm sure Kenny Chesney and Blake and Tim McGraw and Carrie Underwood, they've all passed on songs that have become big hits. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they've also discovered songs like Somewhere With You that no one else wanted, and they make them into hits. So it just kind of goes that way, and uh, I'm just thankful someone recorded it. We're buzzing like that no vacancy sign out front. Your skin is begging to be kissed by a little Well, the thing that I've learned, certainly over doing this podcast, is that artists, the best artists, really do know what songs are best and which are not for them. For them, exactly. When you sit down in a room, do you sit down with an artist in mind, or are you more... Do you, are you just writing for whoever is going to snap this sucker up when it's finished? I personally just write for who's ever going to snatch it up, or I've already started it because it's something that's been on my mind, like different for girls. Now, there are some people that aim for an exact artist, and I'm sure it works for them, but that's never really worked for me. It's in, it's impossible to try to guess what Keith Urban wants to sing about or Billy Currington or any of these people. Now, they, 
the people that work for them might say, well, they, they need a song that sounds country or they want a song about a car or whatever. But in in my experience, it's never, ever gone that way. I mean, there was literally a memo. In Nashville, there's all sorts of memos and emails. They, they send out sheets of paper to show what everyone's looking for. There was an actual memo that went out that said no drinking songs for Blake in gigantic print. <laughs> but then he ended up recording Sangria, so... If we had said, well, we shouldn't write this because Blake won't do it, I, I find it's just a, a rabbit hole you'll go down and, and can't get out of. Now, I do. I will say this. I wrote a song called Bar at the End of the World that Kenny Chesney recorded. I had the title and the idea because my buddy lives in the Virgin Islands, and I would go down there to visit him, and I would see the beach bars that you have to get to by boat. So I saved that idea for David Lee Murphy, who's a great writer, who's mm -hmm. had a few Kenny songs and I did say, man, this could probably be a Kenny thing. That was the only instance that's ever happened. And we actually just recorded it on our phone and sent it to Kenny. And he ended up uh, recording it, which is very rare. It's never happened. So I got really lucky with that one. There's a trail of smoke coming out of a bottle. If you look real close, you can see it right there. A little tender bar down a path you have to follow. From a treasure map with the edges burnt from a few too many beers. We'll pull the ropes off the boat. We'll throw them up on the dock. We'll let the stars be our guide. No, we don't need no clock. We'll set sail. Yeah, see you there when in your hand that T-shirt on. Dead men tell no tales. It's like no. Are you ever surprised when you, like, you write somewhere in my car, and then months later you hear, oh, Keith Urban picked that. Are you ever surprised by who picks your song? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great uh, question, because I actually wrote that one with Keith, and so I was, when we were writing it, um, he was like, wow, this is really good. Who do you think would, this would be good for? And I said, and I'd never <laughs> met him really before too much. And I said, I think it would be great for you. So <laughs> he really, he, wait, 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 wait. Keith Urban actually said, who do you think this would be good for? He may have been kidding because he was really funny, but okay. I, I don't want to, you know, throw myself under the bus. I think he did say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I have to. I give Keith all the credit in the world. He he said, "This is how I want the drums to sound." He showed me the beat. He said, "These are the guitar chords." He was playing them, and he said, "I want it to be about looking back at a relationship because he's he's happily married, obviously, to Nicole Kidman. He hadn't written a song like that in a while, apparently. So he had this whole blueprint ready. All I had to do was just kind of." help him connect the, the pieces and he was incredibly nice his kids were running out of the, around the studio and and yeah so we we wrote that together i had a really great experiment with him my mom is somewhere in my car and it's raining hard on the street like glory got your lips on Talk about that you just kind of brought up something that I'm 
and I'm, I don't know enough about music and about songwriting to, I hope I word the question correctly, but what about the, the musicality of a song? I've always been a lyric guy, and when I put this podcast together, I was thinking more in terms of lyrics, but, you know, you, you got to have a melody. you got to have musicality in there, too. And as a songwriter, how much of that plays into what you do, and how much of, of that do you leave to the artist when they get a hold of it, and the producer, and, and, and all that once it gets into the studio? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Now, I don't, most guys and girls in town know the names of the chords and E, F minor. You go to the one, you go to the five. I never know what they're talking about. I don't know the names of the chords. I don't know the notes of the music. I play guitar. I play a little bit of piano, but I, I couldn't tell you the difference between the chords. So what we do is we write them usually on acoustic guitar. Then we go record them in a studio with, you know, at Nashville, the best musicians around. And then we do a full demo, and usually they copy the demo exactly. You're crashing into me like waves on the coast. Every time we talk, you move in close. I don't want you to stop. I don't want you to stop tonight. We got the last two glasses on a straw hood bar. Trying to remember what number we are. If a big star or a new artist wanted to change the guitar part or the melody, doesn't matter to me, but they usually don't. And I just, I've always loved anything catchy. I like songs you can hear one time and just remember them forever, whether it's, you know, oh, Mickey, you're so fine, or Every Breath You Take by the Police, or, you know, I like it, I love it. So I'm always trying to come up with melodies that are super catchy. It's hard. Writing a simple melody is, is really is hard to do. I don't know why. So I hope I'm answering your question. We usually try to map it out pretty pretty much like it is. Now, for instance, Alone With You, it, it's, I know I'm going back a couple of years of that song. No, let's do Somewhere With You. Um, the kind of digga, 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 Somewhere With You has kind of that U2 guitar thing. Mm-hmm. We did not have that. That was Kenny and Buddy Cannon, and I love it. We just recorded that song on an acoustic guitar with a little bit of a drum. So sometimes it does change, but I've, I've never been disappointed. I've always been thrilled. Um, and we still get all the songwriting credit. I don't know how that works, but, I'll, but I like it. <laughs> um, another quick question. We've got just a few minutes left, I know, and uh, yeah. this has been so much fun to, to talk to you. Um, one thing that, that other songwriters that I've talked with have expressed, several of them, is that they try to keep their writing generic, and that's, that's what they do, and that works for them. You don't seem to do that. Your songs seem to be pretty personal. Is that a correct perception? Yes, and I'd love to be, you know, shouted out. You know, I'm here to get noticed. That's why I wear a suit with, you know, <laughs> stormtroopers on it. And that's why I, you know, but the truth is uh, I only write songs the way I, I know how to do it, and that's to just get these really little teeny details from my own life. I read this somewhere years ago 
what is most personal is most universal. Like the, the, the times you're writing a song and you think nobody's going to understand this, if you just kind of explain it right. It's funny how those personal things become – so many people relate to them. The flip side of that is Phil Collins from Genesis, one of the biggest songwriters of all time. If you really analyze his lyrics, some of them are so generic – that you don't even know what he's talking about, but at the same time, they become these giant hits. So it, it really, I, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. I mean, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. I guess you could call that generic, but somehow it's just brilliant and beautiful, of course, the Beatles song. So that's a great question. But no, if I just if I just came in to write a song that just said, girl, you're pretty, girl, you're pretty, that doesn't work for me. I have to say, you know, girl, you're pretty, and you had a, a guitar pick earring, and uh, mm-hmm. you had, uh, you know, shorts that had a name, uh, written a phone number written and marker on your shorts or whatever. I'm just making this up. That I, I get excited when we're writing songs like that. I know when I'm going to sing that at the Bluebird or sing it out, you know, on a big stage in San Jose or something. I'm, I, I'm excited to sing that. So I usually don't write them generic. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I just got, yeah. I mean, you're obviously a great songwriter and you've got a lot of years left in, in, in the business and I'm sure a Thank you. ton more. But do you do any stand up or have you considered it? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I did. I, uh, Shane McAnally, they had a roast for him for charity. I don't know if I'm sure most people know who Shane is. He's a great writer and great producer. Yeah. Uh, but I did. Oh, I crushed it. I got up there and just uh, <laughs> let him have it. It was great. No, I don't do any stand-up. But, oh, one of the greatest tweets of all time, she meant it as a compliment. Some lady posted, if you go to Nashville, you've got to see J.T. Harding. He's a mix between Richard Simmons and Tim McGraw. And I, I just, I, I, I think it's a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, for for those of you out there in Radio Land, I do not look like Richard Simmons. <laughs> but I'll tell you, if I wrote songs like I do and looked like Tim McGraw, I'd, I'd you know I'd have five houses, oh not just two. Do you ever do any uh, uh, guitar pulls with the Warren Brothers? Because that would be that would be epic. Yes, I have, and boy, I I have to warm up for that one because I know they're going to let me have it with their one liners. And uh, this one, I mean, can I just speak freely here? Absolutely. Yeah. So I did one with them, and I'm like, all right, I've got to be ready for these guys. And the audience usually doesn't ask questions or anything. And this really nice lady held up her hand in the audience. We were playing this big theater, and I just said yes. And she said, what does your girlfriend say about all these sad songs you sing, all these breakup songs? And I was trying to think of an answer, and then uh, – uh, Brad Warren said his girlfriend doesn't say anything. She's a blow-up doll, and the frickin' the roof came off the place. I mean, I mean, and then and then his brother Brett said that's not true. Sometimes she goes when he lays down on her. Oh gosh. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with guys like that, there's no. I didn't even have a comeback. It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, thank you. And listen to to the to the listen. I can write the greatest songs in the world. But without guys like you that play them on the radio, without country music listeners, without country music fans that go cheer on Tim McGraw and Little Big Town, I mean, I would have nothing. So I cannot thank you enough. And we are nothing without country music fans and the radio stations that play these songs. So I really appreciate you uh, doing that for all of us and having me on your podcast. Well, not, not not to turn this into a mutual butt kissing, but if you didn't write great songs, we wouldn't be playing you. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
And you yes. do write great songs, man. Thank you so much for taking time. JT Harding. Um, I hope we can talk to you again sometime. Yes. And if you're, if you're a songwriter out there, two things. Be yourself. Don't try to copy what's on the radio. And as always, don't bore us. Get to the chorus. And that is a wrap for this month's Write You a Song. I'm Tom Maley. If you're new to the podcast, go back through the archives. We have eight other shows with insight to songwriting from some truly great Nashville writers, including Jeffrey Steele, Brett Warren, Brett James, Liz Rose, Ashley McBride, and Tim Nichols. If you're enjoying the podcast and are a subscriber, first, thank you. Second, let others know about it because our marketing budget right now is pretty much you. I'd also love feedback on the show and suggestions of what other writers you'd like to hear from. My email is tmailey, that's M-A-I-L-E-Y, at bonneville.com. Write You a Song has been brought to you in part by Bonneville Communications and my radio station here in Sacramento, California, New Country 105.1 KNCI. It's also brought to you by Songwriter City, bringing basically what we do on this show to a stage near you for whatever event you're planning. Imagine the writers of songs like Live Like You Were Dying, Red Solo Cup, Better Man, and Sangria all sitting on stage playing their songs and giving you the stories behind them. That's what Songwriter City does, and they can bring the show to you wherever you are. Find out more at songwritercity.com. Enjoy your June, and join us next month when we bring in a guy who's written songs for others. And himself. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. He's a pretty good live entertainer, too. Chris Jansen joins us next month on Write You a Song. Thanks again for listening.